Welcome to the New Hope Podcast. Our mission at New Hope is to engage our city with the love of Jesus, one relationship at a time. We pray this message encourages you in encountering God's love and displaying it to your city. We hope to see you soon. Amen. So if you will um, join me in just reading over Leviticus chapter 10, I'll go ahead and uh, read and uh, you can follow along. So Leviticus chapter 10. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphon, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithmar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose. And do not tear your clothes lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. And the Lord said to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has said to them by Moses. Moses spoke to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his surviving sons. Take the grain offering that is left of the Lord's food offerings and eat it, with unleavened, eat it unleavened beside the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it in a holy place because it is your due and your son's due from the Lord's food offerings, for so I am commanded. But the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, you shall eat in a clean place, you and your sons and your daughters with you, for they are given as your due and your son's due from the sacrifices of the peace offerings of the people of Israel. The thigh that is contributed and the breast that is waved, they shall bring with the food offerings of the fat pieces to wave for a wave offering before the Lord. And it shall be yours and your sons with you as a due forever, as the Lord has commanded. Now Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it was burned up. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the surviving sons of Aaron, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the, most, in the place of the sanctuary, since it is a thing most holy, and has been given to you that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation, to make atonement for them before the Lord. Behold, its blood was not brought into the inner part of the sanctuary. You certainly ought to have eaten it in the sanctuary as I commanded. And Aaron said to Moses, Behold, today they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and yet, sure thing, as these have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approved. 
Thanks. If you're continuing with us in our one-year reading, we've come to Leviticus, and I've learned from experience, um, from reading the one-year reading year after year, and from others who have tried to read the one-year reading year after year, is that Leviticus is where the reading Bible reading plans simply go to die. It's where most people usually give up on their one-year readings. It's usually the place where, at the beginning of the year, we're excited about you know the New Year's resolution to read all of Scripture. Genesis is this really cool story. Exodus are really cool stories. And then we get to Leviticus, and we read passages just like we read, and we're going, you wave the thigh. What is the point of all this? I'm really confused. What I want to do tonight is we're uh, coming to Leviticus is obviously we're only spending one week in Leviticus and obviously we don't have time to explain everything. So we want to take a big picture of what is the purpose of Leviticus. And here's simply the purpose of Leviticus is it is to show us the holiness of God. That God is holy and that we are not holy and that for us to come into his presence as he is holy and we are unholy is not a simple thing. And that we should not take it lightly and we should grasp and comprehend the holiness of God. Now when we look at Leviticus and we talk about Leviticus, one of the common questions I get is why do we obey some of the things in the Old Testament law, i.e. specifically Leviticus, and why not obey other things? And I want to answer that question quickly, even though it's not specific to this text, but I do want to answer it quickly as we begin to process, as we understand Leviticus, and when we read it, making sense of all these things. And here's how we do it. There are three types of laws in the Old Testament. First is what is known as civil laws. Civil laws are laws that govern a nation. Israel, as they were brought out of Egypt, they were, became a nation. They were not just a religion, but they were a nation before God. And so God created civil laws in the Old Testament for them to obey. Now, we recognize that we as the church, the continuation of the covenant of God from the Old Testament, we are not a nation. Therefore, the civil laws do not apply. Second type of law are ceremonial laws. And ceremonial laws, likewise, are laws that were given unto them, similar to what we just read of certain types of sacrifices and how you make sacrifices and the need for those sacrifices. But we understand that through Christ, Christ is the fulfillment of the ceremonial law. He's the fulfillment of all those things. And if you go and read the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, it makes it clear that Christ is the fulfillment of all of those things. Therefore, there's no longer a need for the ceremonial law. And so civil and ceremonial no longer apply ultimately because of Christ. Third type of law are moral laws in the Old Testament. And those do transcend from Old Testament into New Testament because it shows us how we can grieve God and how we sin in disobedience and morality. And so moral laws we do see carried over. We see Christ talk about them. We see Paul and other New Testament writers talk about them. And so we see the continuation of those things. So we don't just pick and choose. Well, we don't really like that about Leviticus, so we don't do it. No, there's a reason for it, and it usually the answer can be explained and clearly taught through with Christ. But tonight, what I want to do with Leviticus chapter 10, it is one of the few stories or one of the few passages in Leviticus that's actually a narrative that gives an illustration to show us the major point of all that's being talked about. And so I want to use this passage to highlight the major themes of the book of Leviticus. 
And so if you're following along and you're taking some notes tonight, I just want you to simply to write truth number one as we look at this text. We're going to see and we need to understand what it means to recognize God's holiness. So truth number one is recognizing God's holiness. What is Leviticus designed to accomplish in us? When we read the book of Leviticus, that's a question we need to ask. What is it designed to accomplish in us? And second, why does God's holiness matter to me? Why does this even matter? What does any of this have to do with me? I want to read Leviticus chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Just read the first three verses again to make this point. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And what was God's response? Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified or be set apart as holy. That's what that sanctified means. And before all the people, I will be glorified. In what? Aaron held his peace. When we begin to think about recognizing God's holiness, it is even more explicit. If you look at verse 10 of chapter 10, it says this, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common or unholy, between the holy and the unholy, and between the clean and the unclean. When we look at the holiness of God, here's the whole point of Leviticus, and it's even illustrated in one of these weird laws in Leviticus that says you cannot have two different fabrics sewn together in a single cloth that you wear. You're like, why does that even matter? Because if you look at your tags, I guarantee you're probably wearing mixed fabrics right now and going, what was, does it even really matter? Like, you know, but the, here's the point is that law in and of itself was trying to communicate the whole point of Leviticus is that which is holy cannot be mixed with that which is unholy. That only that which goes together and is the same can go together, meaning only holy can go with holy and unclean or unholy goes with unholy. But you cannot put holy and unholy together and it be OK. Let me illustrate it this way. Um, my car seems to not like alternators. And if you don't know what an alternator is, it's the thing that when you start your car, it keeps your battery charged. And because my car doesn't like alternators, I seem to run into these moments where my car just won't charge, battery won't charge, my car dies. Like uh, about a month ago, literally, I know this is the problem. I'm trying to drive to the dealership and my car literally dies in front of a car dealership. So let me back out. Trying to take my car to where it's going to get fixed. It dies on the way in front of a car dealership. And I have to go in and ask them to help jumpstart my car. And of course, they're like, dude, it died in front of a car dealership. I think this is a sign. I think you should, I think you should give us your car and buy our car. I said, I said, look, obviously you had to. You're a salesman. You had to go there. But can you just help jumpstart my car? Here's the point. I've gotten really good at jump-starting my car because of this. Uh, a Jay has gotten really good at coming and jump-starting my car because of this also. But even as many times as I've done this, there's still this moment where um, you take the jumper cables and you've already put them on the car that's running, and you're like, hey, I've got to carefully touch them to where they're supposed to go. But if these two cables touch, it's going to be bad. I mean, it's going to be real bad. And if you don't know what that's like, you should go try it. No, I'm just kidding. Don't go try it. 
But the point is, when you take the two ends of the jumper cable that aren't supposed to go, why? Because one's positive, one's negative. They're not supposed to go together. And when you touch them together, nothing good happens. This is what's happening in the first three verses of this chapter. Is the picture is that which is holy, and that when we approach that which is holy, we must approach it on the God's terms, not on our terms. And Nadab and Abihu, they come in, and they are priests in the presence of God, and they are supposed to be representation of what is holy. Verse 10 tells them what the priest's command is, and the priest's command is to distinguish what is holy and unholy between what is clean and unclean. And Nadab and Abihu disobey God. They do something they were not supposed to do, and what they do is they touch that which is unholy with what is holy, and the result is a consuming fire. When you and I talk about this truth, number one, recognizing the holiness of God, Leviticus is trying to give us a picture, a very real picture, that God is holy and we must be careful how we respond to His holiness. If you're following along also in the one you're reading, one of the reasons we chose the reading that we did, if you're using the app version, is it has some videos built in. And in this um, it's reading through Leviticus, there's a video in there talking about the holiness of God. And it uses about the best illustration possible because their words are not sufficient to try to communicate the concept of the holiness of God. They just aren't. But this illustration is probably the closest to it. And in the video, it shows an illustration of think about the holiness of God like the sun in the center of, at le- of our universe or in the center of our you know, solar system. Everything revolves around the sun, and the sun is kind of a twofold thing. One, it is so hot and it's so powerful that if you get close to it, it will burn you, it will kill you, it will consume you, but yet at the same time, you still need the sun for life. Right? We wouldn't have life, physical life, here in our solar system if it wasn't for the sun. So it has this twofold purpose of recognizing that it is the most powerful thing in physically in our solar system. We can't get too close to it because it will burn us up, but at the same time we still need it. Likewise, when we think about the holiness of God, He is at the center of all of His creation. It is His holiness. Everything revolves around His holiness. And the twofold reality is, is if we come close to it as that which is unholy or unclean, it will burn us up and consume us. But at the same time, we absolutely need His holiness for life. And we'll understand that more in a minute. But we see the picture much more as a sun consumes, that we see God created and spoke the sun into existence so much more as His power and His holiness. We see God's holiness displayed in fire all throughout Scripture. Specifically, we see Moses in the burning bush. We read that in Exodus where Moses, he... He's out and he, in the wilderness and he sees like this bush that is burning and he's noticing, he's watching and it's not burning up. He's going, that's interesting. I'm going to go f- see what's going on. And so he walks close to it and God speaks out to him and says, what? Stop. Do not come any closer because you are on holy ground. He's warning him that because of his holiness, that, hey, Moses, if you step any closer, you're going to touch holy with unholy and the result is not going to be good. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, we're going to read that in the coming months. We see the fire of God and His holiness come down on Mount Sinai to meet with His people. And He makes a covenant there with with Him. In Numbers chapter 16, we see once again people um, not come into God's holiness in the right way. And His fire comes out and consumes them. 
Hebrews chapter 12, 29 says, God is a consuming fire. When we come and look at Leviticus and read Leviticus and go, this is weird. I don't understand this. This doesn't make sense. That's true. And a lot of it doesn't make sense. And I'll be honest, it's even tough for me in the one you're reading every year to focus in and read it. But here's the takeaway of Leviticus, that God is holy. And because he is holy, we are unable to draw near to him without being consumed. So it begs question that leads to truth number two. What is our attitude towards God? And truth number two, how do we respond to God's holiness? Responding to God's holiness is also a key truth of Leviticus. How do we respond to the holiness of God? Because God is holy and we try to recognize His holiness. And you got to understand that God's holiness is not just a concept in our minds, but it should be a weighty thing in our hearts. Which is why in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word uh, for glory is also the Hebrew word for weight and heaviness. That God's glory and His holiness should cause be a weight and a burden on us in our hearts that we should respond in a reverent way. But there's two ways that we wrongly often respond to the reality of God and His holiness. And we've talked about these before, but I want to tell you just these two ways that we wrongly respond to Him and explain them. The first is through something that we just simply call legalism. Legalism is the worst form of religion. Legalism is obeying rules as a means to holiness. Let me say that again. Legalism is obeying rules as a means to holiness. So here's what happened. We do it in our hearts, but this is what happened to the Pharisees, specifically, at least in the New Testament that Jesus deals with. As they said, God's given us 613 commandments in the Old Testament. All right. If I do all of them, then I will be holy. And so they just, their obedience and their response to God's holiness is just about being obedient and doing the right things. Because if they do so, then they'll be holy before God. God will love them and God will accept them. We play this out even in our life today of going, if I just say the right things, if I just go to church on Sunday, if I just do the things I'm supposed to do, then if I just do these things, then, then God will see my obedience And then he will see that I am holy because of that obedience. And therefore, we just do what we do as a form of earning holiness. Well, the other side is simply what we call anti-legalism. It's the complete opposite. And anti-legalism is simply ignoring the need for obedience or obedience for the sake of holiness. So anti-legalism plays in that oftentimes, even within Christianity, you'll hear this. Well, God's given us grace that he's forgiven me of my sins, therefore I can live however I want. This side says I have to be perfectly obedient in order to earn God's grace and earn his holiness. This side says, well, because of Jesus, God's given me his grace and his holiness, and I can live however I want. It doesn't really matter anymore. I can't, this side, I see the errors of this side trying to earn God's holiness, and you can't. So I won't even try to earn God's holiness. And in fact, I've already given his grace has been given to me. Therefore, I can live however I want. Both of these are wrong responses to the holiness of God. And they're actually the same response. Let me tell you how. This side is self-centered. And it's self-centered because it says, I can earn my way to God and his holiness. That I am unclean, but I am my own means through my own obedience of, of obeying God's law. I can earn 
God's holiness. You see, the focus is on what you've done for you. It's self-centered. This side is the same in the sense that it's also self-centered. And it's self-centered because it says, God's forgiven me, therefore I can do whatever I want and live however I want. Self-centered. But if you and I truly recognize the holiness of God, our response cannot be something that is focused on us. It cannot be something that is self-centered. And if we think we grasp God and His glory and His holiness, and if our response has anything to do with self-centeredness, then we have not recognized the holiness of God. But when we, truth number one, clearly recognize the weight and the glory of the holiness of God and our unworthiness to come into His presence, then our response should be what we see at the end of chapter 10, reverent obedience. Look with me in verse 16. Now Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it was burned up. And he was angry with Eliezer and Ithmar, the surviving sons of Aaron, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary? Since it is a thing most holy and has been given to you that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord. Now, let me tell you what's going on in the story, because I know as you're reading Leviticus 10, you're going, I'm kind of confused. And that's okay. Um, I still am, but I'm going to do my best to try to explain God's word to us. I want us to see the parallels of what is happening and what Moses is doing in telling this story and what actually is happening in the story. Leviticus chapter 10, we, at the beginning, we see two sons disobey God and God sends a consuming fire and judgment upon them. Here, at the end of Leviticus 10, we once again see two sons disobeying God, which we would expect the same response. Now, what did they do, the second set of sons, to disobey God? Well, they had been given a commandment in 12 through 15 to eat the food in a certain way in a certain place. So here's what happens is the priests would go and they would be they would participate not only for themselves, but for all the people. And they would sacrifice for the sake of sins or for the sake of offerings of other people and specifically certain sin sacrifices with animals. They would take the blood and they would have to sprinkle it either on the altar or on the people or on certain things because of Hebrews chapter um, 12, which says through the shedding of blood, there's the remission of sins that it is in blood and the shedding of blood that we see forgiveness of sins. And we see that in the Old Testament, and New Testament, but they would have to take that offering, sprinkle it, and then the offering itself was holy. The priests were considered to be holy. And then they would go into the holy place of God, not the most holy, but into the tabernacle in the holy place of God. And them and their families were permitted to eat it there in holy place. So holy food, holy place, holy people, they could eat it there together. So that was the command. Now, his sons and the family, after what happened to the first two, when they got consumed, they did not obey God by going and eating the food, the holy food in a holy place. And Moses says, it says, the scripture says that Moses was angry. Because why? They disobeyed God. And rightfully so. If I'm Moses, I'm going, Aaron, come on, man. You just had your older two sons die because of disobedience. And now you got two more sons dying because, or, or, or have disobeyed God. You expect the result to be the same. He's mad and he's asking a question. But I want you to listen to Aaron's response, because this is where truth number two comes from. How do we respond to the God's holiness? We respond with reverence. Listen to what he says. 
in verse 19. And Aaron said to Moses, Behold, today they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and yet such things as these have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approved. Now, we read it and go, I'm not really still sure what he said. I don't understand what the pastor's trying to get out here. Let me explain it. Clearly, that whatever he said, it was the right answer. Why? Because we see in verse 20, it said that when Moses heard it, he approved. And so when you begin to meditate on it and begin to look at it, here, here's what Aaron said. Aaron said, look, I know that we just got done with Leviticus chapter 9, where there was a sacrifice made for Aaron and his son so that they could be the priests for the people. And Leviticus 9 ends with God accepting their sacrifice, and it says a fire comes and consumes their sacrifice at the end of Leviticus chapter 9. So at that point, in theory, they are now made holy. So, in, so the priests are made holy. Remember, they to go in and eat the holy food of God in the holy place of God, if they are unholy then what happens when unholy and holy come together? Nothing good. Which is exactly what happens at the beginning of chapter 10, that even though the sacrifice has been made, clearly Nadab and Abihu did what was not right, and unholy met holy, and it consumed them. And Aaron, recognizing that if he were to go eat the food, which is holy, in a holy place, but yet he's recognizing that because of his son's sin, what if I'm no longer holy? And he's going, if I'm no longer holy and I dare touch the food that is holy or eat it in the place that is holy, then I might result in condemnation. So therefore, out of fear of reverence of the holiness of God, I will actually disobey him in order to play it safe. See, both sons disobeyed. We got to get this. The first two sons disobeyed and the second sons disobeyed. The first two sons disobeyed and were burnt up. The second sons disobeyed and weren't burnt up. Why? What's the difference? The difference is this. The first sons disobeyed because they did not fear the holiness of God. And the second sons disobeyed because they did fear the holiness of God. See the difference? Already that is letting us know that God cares more about your heart than your actions obedience is no sure sign of a holy heart, but a holy heart will guarantee obedience. And in this moment, God's going, you know what? I'm not, I don't want you to just to be legalistic, legalism, and just do and obey for the sake of obeying. But at the same time, I don't want you over here anti-legalism and not being obedient. And, Mo, and Aaron in the middle goes, well, I'm not really sure if I'm even worthy anymore to eat the holy food. Therefore, I'm just going to stay at a distance and let it burn up. Because what if I'm not holy and dare I never be unholy and come into the presence of God, which is holy, because I will not live. And Moses hears his answer and approves. Why? Because his answer was out of reverent fear to the holiness of God. Now, there's no perfect way to illustrate this, but let me try to give some practicals how you and I kind of understand the reverence a little bit. Um, maybe when you have ever met someone that maybe you admired or a hero of yours, um, or maybe someone famous, um, did you get nervous? Did you respond in awkward ways? Let me tell you an example. One of my heroes of the faith, and there's many of them, but one of 
the ones I've gotten to meet is Tim Keller. Um, he's, I've taken some classes with him, and so as a professor, I've met him. But also, he lives off the F train, and I take the F train. And so one day we were going to class. I'm going to class that he's teaching one morning, and we happen to get on the same F train. Um, we don't talk because what am I going to say to him? Um, and I've met him before, but still, like, what do you say to him, right? It's someone you really respect. And so then we walk a couple of blocks, and I keep my distance because I still don't know what to say to him. But then there comes this moment where we get on the elevator, and it's just the two of us. And, well, man, like, i got to say something now. And so, like, what do I say to him, right? And so we're on the elevator, and I just decided I wasn't going to say anything. You know, I just wasn't going to say anything. He doesn't know who I am anyways. We're in a class of, like, six people. He does know who I am, but still I'm just like, I'm not going to say anything. And, and we have this really awkward moment. He, he looks over at me, and he says, were you on the F train just now? And I said, yeah. He was like, it was really crowded today, wasn't it? I was like, yeah. He was like, why do you think that was? I don't know. Maybe, maybe school's starting back for people. He was like, yeah, maybe that's it. And then we had like 14 more flights. You know, just, why do I give that illustration? Because nowhere, I want to be clear, nowhere am I comparing Tim Keller to anything of the holiness of God at all. But I am simply saying, you and I respond when we come into the presence of people we respect, we respond differently because of that respect right? This is very different illustration, just to make my point that I'm not, you know, just making this religious illustration. It's no different than when I walked into a coffee shop uh, on the Upper West Side, and I stood in line behind Ben Stiller. And they had this moment like, man, that's Ben Stiller. My first thought was, he's shorter than I thought. And then (laughs) that was just the first thought that went through my head. And then I was like, do I talk to him? Do I not talk to him? I'm looking around. No one else is talking to him. So I'm like, do I talk to him? I don't know. And so he gets up and he's ordering his coffee. And then I watch that guy freak out because it's kind of funny. He's like, "Uh, what's your name, sir? So I can put it on your coffee. He goes, Ben. And then the guy next to him was like, you really had to ask Ben Stiller what was his name? It's just awkward. He's like, I didn't know what to say to him. I didn't know what to say to him. Right? What was the point? Same, same difference, right? He's someone famous. I don't respect him in the same way I do Tim Keller. But even then, he's someone famous. And I'm like, I don't know. What do I say to him? What do I say? So I said nothing to him. Right? I just didn't say anything to him. Well, we do the same. Like, if you meet someone, maybe your boss or someone, there, there's, you respond to people out of respect and position. Now, there is no illustration that it comes anything close to what I'm trying to communicate. But the point is simply this. You and I naturally respond in reverent, respectful ways to people we admire. How much more should it be so to a holy God? That when we recognize His holiness, might we respond in such a way that says, you know what, like Aaron did, I'm not even going to come close. Until I know for sure that I was able. See, now Moses hints at in the text, hey, Aaron, you could have gone in and eaten. Why didn't you go into the holy place and eat the holy food? And Aaron essentially says, because what if I'm not holy? What if? How do I know? And that leads us to this question. See, here's the thing in this text. This text leaves us with somewhat of a cliffhanger. It never answers that question. It never answers the question, how do we know if Aaron was clean or unclean? How do we know if Aaron was able to go into the holy place and eat the holy food? Isaiah chapter 6 gives us a picture of this, and this leads me to truth number three. How do you and I receive God's holiness? How do you and I receive God's holiness? Because here's the truth. How is it that we who are unholy are able to come into a place that is holy? 
How is it that we that are unholy, because of our sin, because of our rebellion, that Romans 5 and Psalms 51 makes it very clear that you and I are born with sin. Therefore, you and I are unholy. Therefore, you and I are unworthy and incapable of coming into the holy presence of God unless you and I have first received His holiness before we step into His holiness. See, the only way that one can come into the holiness of God is that if he is holy. And the only way that you and I are made holy is if that which is holy reaches over and touches that which is unholy and makes it holy. Isaiah chapter 6 gives us a picture of this where Isaiah is brought and ushered in to the presence of the God in a holy place. And what does he describe? He describes angels singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And I want you to see the beauty of this. And when we get to Isaiah, I'm sure I'll preach on this in a few months, but you'll forget it by then, so I'll say it now and say it then. But when you look at this in Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You and I in English, when we want to uh, say something with emphasis, we'll say that it is holy. Then we'll say that it is, uh, uh, you know, really holy, or that it is very holy, or it is most holy. We'll give... Uh, words on the front end to try to describe it. But we won't say holy, holy, holy. But listen to me, in Hebrew, what you do is to describe something with emphasis, you say it multiple times. In the English language, we can't use double negatives, right? We can't say no and no in the same sentence because they cancel each other out, and then it's a positive, and it doesn't make sense. But in Hebrew... If you want to make an emphasis, you say no two or three times in a sentence to show that this is a really something you shouldn't do. Point is, is that if you want to emphasize something in Hebrew, you say it multiple times. When it comes to the characteristics of God, this is the only characteristic in Scripture that is repeated three times. Because it is the central characteristic of God that He is holy, which means He is set apart from us that He is beyond us, that He is something that is holy and he, we are not because of sin. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And when He, this is what's happening, He is recognizing God's holiness. How does He respond? He says in verse 5, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. Recognize unclean. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See what he's done? Truth number one, he, he recognized God's holiness. And how did he respond? Woe is me. Reverence. But look what happens. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the, with tongs from the altar. Now remember, Fire is a picture of God's holiness. And what happens is an angel isn't even able to touch this coal. He takes tongs and he grabs a, um, a coal from the presence of God and he t- takes it over to Isaiah. And look at verse 7. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The only way that something is unclean and it is made clean is because that which is holy reaches over and touches it. We see this picture very clearly in Matthew chapter 8 with Jesus. Matthew chapter 8, we see a law from Leviticus chapter 14. Leviticus chapter 14 dealing with lepers or those that have a skin disease. If you have a skin disease, you're considered unclean. 
And if you're unclean and you touch something that is clean, that which is clean becomes unclean. So it has the negative effect. But in Matthew chapter 8, you've got to see the beauty of connecting it with Isaiah chapter 6. When Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus, what? Stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. You've got to see the beauty of what the gospels are telling us in this moment. Because any other time in scripture, when a leper is touched, the thing that touches the leper becomes unclean. But in this moment, Jesus is the clean one. He is the holy one. And he reaches over and instead he doesn't become unclean, but his cleanliness and his holiness is transferred to that which is unclean. He is touched in this moment. When we study and look, and I want to encourage you to read Hebrews, because especially now as you're reading the Old Testament, go while that's fresh in your mind, go read the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is telling and answering the question, ultimately, of how Jesus is the one that makes us clean. That Jesus is the sacrifice that makes us clean. That he is the one who has gone before us and into the holies of holies. That he is the great high priest. That he is the sacrificial lamb. He is all of these things. But Hebrews chapter 6 says this. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the holy place, the inner place behind the curtain. I'm just going to stop there. I want to see how this connects. Remember, Aaron is afraid that he is unclean, therefore he is unsure if he can enter into the place that is holy and eat the holy thing. Because what if he's not, and he comes in contact with that as holy, he will be condemned. But Hebrews tells us that because of Jesus, our hope is already behind the curtain. Our hope is already in the holy place. Why? Because Jesus has already taken us there. That through his sacrifice and through his death, that his blood has been shed for us and he has touched us. Romans chapter 3, 21 through 21, 6 says this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest or revealed to us apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Remember in this series, we've been saying everything in the law and the prophets is pointing to Jesus. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all, who, for, for all who believe. There is no distinction. All have sin and fall short of the glory of God. Meaning all of us are short of His holiness. That we are unworthy. But, verse 24, also all have fall short of the glory of God. Also all are justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Who God put forward as a propitiation or a payment by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How do you and I receive the holiness of God? Because here's the reality, and we got to get this. Scripture tells us that one day we will be ushered into the presence of God. And there's a moment that one of two things are going to happen. When you enter into the holiness of God, either it'll be an unclean, unholy thing for you to enter into the holy, and it will result in condemnation according to Scripture. 
that what we see at the beginning of Leviticus chapter 10 is what Scripture says will happen for all eternity when you and I, if we are unclean, for those who are unclean and unholy, when we come into the holiness of God and unclean meets holy, it will not go good. But the other thing, option two, the other thing could be that we are holy when we enter into the presence of God and we are welcome there. So, option one, we're unholy when we enter the presence of God. Option two, we're holy when we enter the presence of God. And I tell you what, I want to be holy when I enter the presence of God. Which begs the question, how am I holy when I enter the presence of God? You're holy when you enter the presence of God because Christ has made a sacrifice which was the payment of your sins. And then second, he has reached down and saved you and touched you in salvation. That in salvation, by grace you have been saved through faith. That is a picture that he has stepped down and touched you. Specifically, Ephesians 2, when it says that, it says that while we were dead in our trespasses and sin, that we were made alive with Christ. Meaning that we were raised, it tells that we were raised with him and seated with him. It's a picture of what we talked about in the last few weeks, last week, of specifically that he stepped down and touched us and brought us into his presence. You and I enter into God's presence as holy only through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and then Him touching you in salvation. Because here's the reality. Christ died 2,000 years ago. The sacrifice has been made, but that in and of itself does not make you holy. You're holy when through that sacrifice and through His resurrection, that in salvation through faith, He touches you with grace. See, just because Christ died does not mean that you're immediately made holy. But because he has died, and then in grace he touches you and makes you alive in salvation, you are made holy. That it's only through him touching you in salvation. I'm using the word touch just to be illustrative of what we're talking about. But it's through that grace that you and I are made holy. Therefore, we are a holy priesthood according to 1 Peter that we are a holy nation, that we are holy, and that our response is not legalism. We can't earn our holiness, but our response isn't anti-legalism. Well, now that I have it, I can live however we want, because I promise you, if that's the way you think, you don't recognize the holiness of God. But when we truly recognize the holiness of God, and we respond in reverence, surrender, and fear, and awe, and adoration, and say, woe is me, just like Isaiah, just like Aaron, I'm unworthy. And then we receive His holiness through grace. And we are made alive, we are made holy, and we are, be, we are able to be ushered into the presence of God. Do you see the need for Jesus in your life? Do you see it? Do you get it? And I want to encourage you today that as you think about response, the question is, has Christ ever touched you and made you holy? Because if not, you still stand unclean. And because He is a holy God, that that which is unclean cannot come into His presence without being consumed for all eternity. Might you be touched by His holiness in salvation through grace? And might you be made holy? Scripture says that He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of Him. We might become the holiness of Him. It is something that He gives to us in salvation. You don't earn it. You can't earn it. It's impossible to earn it. 
but he gives it to us in salvation. Have you been touched? Have you received God's grace and his holiness? Let's pray. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. You can email us at info at newhopeny.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for those outlets is New Hope NYC. Our website is newhopeny.org. If you are in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 164-2 Gothels Avenue in Jamaica, Queens. We're praying for you and we hope to see you soon.